Uh, Precious Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we collectively come before you as a church family uh, right now, Lord God, people who have been here for a long, long time, uh, and Lord, some who today is their very first time. And and Lord, uh, regardless of uh, our tenure, Lord, we pray that we would come together, uh, Lord, as a a body of Christ, as a family, that, that everyone would know that they are welcome here, that they are loved here, dear God. Thank you for those who are at home and uh, who are watching right now. I pray that you might bless them. And, and Lord, thank you for Shelly. Uh, Lord, she has been an incredible encouragement uh, to me over these many years. I thank you for her willingness to uh, share her story. And uh, Lord, for the great work that you've done in her life, it is a reminder that, uh, Lord, you are at work at all times and in all places, and Lord, that you do a great transformative work that ultimately is for our good, but more importantly, it's for your glory. So, uh, Lord, be glorified today uh, through this message, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, on Sunday morning, September 19th, 2001, Omar Ahmed woke up, put on his running clothes, laced up his running shoes, prepared himself a a healthy breakfast, and then he embarked on a one and a half hour drive from his home in the English town of Birmingham to the city of Bristol so that he could participate in what was known as the Great Bristol Run. And for the last 33 years, at the end of every summer, Thousands of runners descend upon the city of Bristol to compete in a half marathon. But this year was different. This year, because of COVID, they had added a a 10K, which was normally held in the spring, to this half marathon. Now, Omar, he's an elite runner. And he had decided that rather than running the half marathon, he would instead kind of take a break and run the 10K instead. Now, because he was so fast, he was seated in the first wave of the 10K and the half marathon runners. And prior to uh, starting the race, the starter reminded everyone that, that the 10K and the half marathon, they were starting simultaneously. They were going to uh, go on the same route, and eventually they would come to a place called the Merchant Road. And there at the Merchant Road, the, the half marathon would continue straight, but if you were on the 10K, you had to make a left that kind of loops back towards the city of Bristol. After sharing that information, uh, he goes and uh, he tells the runners, you know, get on your mark, hits the, st- uh, the gun, and off these guys and ladies go. Now, at this point, Omar is feeling great. He, he is in the, he's in the zone, he's running at a good pace, he is easily knocking off one kilometer after the next, but there was a problem. Unknowingly, Omar missed the 10K split at Merchant Road, and he continued on the half marathon course. And as he approached this 10 kilometers, He didn't see the finish line, so he asked his fellow runner, is this a 10K? And the runner said, no, dude, this is the half marathon. Now, undeterred by his mistake, Omar continues on the half marathon. He actually wins the half marathon at 63 minutes, his personal best. 
but it is a short-lived victory. Once the race organizers have discovered that Omar was registered for the 10K and not the half marathon, he was disqualified. In the words of the race director, rules are the rules, and in this case, the rules say that we must disqualify Omar. Now, isn't that amazing? Omar wins the race, but it was the wrong one. And because of that, it didn't matter how much he trained, didn't matter how fast he was, didn't matter that, that he finished the race ahead of everybody else. At the end of the day, Omar lost despite his best efforts. And then to make matters worse, the race that he was supposed to run in, the 10K, he received that, that infamous thing that no runner ever wants to receive, DNF, did not finish. On that day, Omar didn't lose just once. He lost twice. And he had no one else to blame but himself. It wasn't the fault of the race organizers. It wasn't the fault of the other runners. The blame laid solely at the feet of Omar. Now, fortunately for Omar, there are other races. New days to start, other opportunities to make things right. But when it comes to the race of life, the spiritual race that determines whether or not that we will enter into the presence of God, brothers and sisters, we get only one shot. And when we cross life's finish line and we discover that, that we are actually running the wrong race, it's too late. There isn't another race in the future, and there will be no one else to blame but ourselves. And that is exactly what we're going to discover as we continue making our way through the New Testament book of Romans. Tonight, we, or this morning, I should say, we're going to focus on Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through verse 10, 4. But before we read that, I want to say thank you. Over the course of the last three weeks, we have focused our time on what is perhaps the most difficult, most controversial chapter in all of the Bible, Romans 9. And as we have discovered over these last three weeks, it is controversial because it speaks of the sovereignty of God over the salvation of you and of me and the balance of humanity. And during these last three weeks, Mike Bongo and Pastor Ben and I have unashamedly declared to you that it is God and God alone who determines who is saved purely on his perfect will. 
And not upon anything that we've done in the past, not upon anything we're doing now, not upon anything that, that we will ultimately do in the future. God makes that decision on his own in eternity past. And we haven't pulled any punches in declaring that God elects some to salvation and that he passes over others. We told you right from the scriptures that God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. He has compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And as such, our salvation doesn't determine, is not determined by human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we have tried to be very humble as we shared this difficult truth. And to your credit, you have responded well to that humility. And for that, I want to say thank you. You see, clearly, the Spirit of God is at work in your hearts. And over these past three weeks, you have demonstrated amazing spiritual maturity. There have been some of you who have had questions. There have been some of you who didn't quite understand or perhaps who didn't agree with the conclusions that Bongo and Pastor Ben and I have shared with you. Some of you have reached out to us and, and you've shared passages of scripture that, that seem to go a, against that which we have taught and you have done so in a Christ-like manner. There has been dialogue, there has been disagreement, there has been give and take, and it all has been done and brotherly and sisterly love with the desire to preserve the unity of the church for which Jesus bled and died. And I've known this for a long time, but Living Water is a very special place. And one of the reasons why it is so special is because God has brought some very, very special people, that being you, to this place. So to that, I say from the depths of my heart, thank you so much. For that which could have been extraordinarily divisive, you all made it extraordinarily beautiful. So let's get started. If you would open your Bibles, please, or, or make your way in your Bible app to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the table around the room. If you're at home, it'll be on the big screen also. Actually, if you're here, it'll be on the big screen too. And uh, with that, if you're able to stand in honor of God's word, would you please do so? Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying a stone, uh, laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, 
my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, for those of you who have been wondering where human responsibility fits into God's plan for salvation, you are now about to discover the answer. Here in the end of, of Romans 9, through the balance of Romans 10, we will discover that God holds all people, all people, including you, including me, responsible for our unbelief, which ultimately results in our failure to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. What we're going to learn is that God holds all people, including you and me, responsible for our unbelief, which ultimately results in our failure to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, how in the world can that be? Especially in light of the last three weeks. Because over the course of the last three weeks, we have been saying that salvation is based on God's election. That it is based on, on God choosing an eternity past, some for salvation and others he simply passes over. And now I'm saying that those who do not place their faith and trust in Jesus, that they are actually morally responsible for their unbelief. Now, how can that possibly be? How can we be held responsible for unbelief if it's due to God's sovereign control? How, how is that possible that that could happen? Are not God's sovereignty and human responsibility contradictory? Well, on the surface, that most definitely appears to be the case. How can they both possibly be true yet exist at the exact same time. How is that possible? Now, as we will see, the Bible teaches that they indeed are true and that they indeed do exist at the exact same time. And there is a term to describe this apparent conundrum. It is called antinomy. And this is the definition. The opposition of one law, regulation, etc. to another, a contradiction or inconsistency between two apparently reasonable principles or laws or between conclusions drawn from them. Now, we read that, we're like, okay, Mike, so what things like that actually exist? Let me give you an example. Some of you, uh, when you were in middle school, well, you were in high school, uh, would have taken physics, some of you who are sick in the head like me would have enjoyed physics. Others of you would have hated physics. But one of the things that you would have learned in physics is that light behaves both as a wave and as a particle. Now, that's not supposed to happen. Things in nature are supposed to behave as either waves or they're supposed to behave as particles, but not the two. 
Yet the fact of the matter is, physics demonstrates that light behaves like a wave and light behaves like a particle. And rather than fight against the reality of physics, we're forced to accept that there are some things in the universe that we just simply have to accept even though we can't possibly clearly explain them. And so it is with God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They are both equally valid, even though we make, have str- trouble making sense that they both happen at the exact same time. Now, in order to introduce this whole concept of, of human responsibility as it relates to salvation, the Apostle Paul, he starts off with a question. Right there at the end of chapter 9, he says this, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. In other words, Paul is saying, what in the world just happened? How did the Gentiles who wanted absolutely nothing to do with God, who, who ridiculed God's law, who, who regularly engaged in all kinds of sin, who have treated the Jewish people horrifically, who have worshipped the false gods of the Romans, how is it that they are coming to Christ in unimaginable numbers? And yet the Jews who were God's chosen people, whose ancestors have have worshipped the God of the Bible for millennia, who were passionate about obeying God's laws? How is it that, that they are rejecting Christ in equally unimaginable numbers? And as a result, these people who appeared to be chosen now are outside of the kingdom of God. How in the world has that happened? Well, Paul answers his own question in verse 32. He says, why? Because they did not pursue it, which is salvation, by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, I want you to notice, not first what Paul has said, but I want you to first notice that which Paul has not said. Paul doesn't say that they are lost because they were passed over by God. And he doesn't say that they are lost because they were not among the elect, which, by the way, are both true. Instead, this is what he says. He says, they did not pursue salvation by faith, but rather they pursued it as if it were based on works. And what he is telling us is this, that the Jewish people were the ones who were responsible for not believing, and the reason that they didn't believe is because they were running the wrong race. They had signed up for a 10K called Faith, and they ended up running a half marathon called Works. And from the very beginning of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been saying over and over again, if you've been here over the course of the the last, what, what has it been now? 29 weeks. If you've been here over the course of the last 29 weeks, you know that Paul has been saying 
over and over and over again. That one is justified, made right with God through faith and faith alone, and not through works. But the Jewish people, they could not get their head wrapped around that. For centuries, they wrongly believed that they were made righteous right before God, justified, saved, whatever word you want to use, through obedience to God's law, despite the clear teachings in the Old Testament. I'll give you one of them, Psalm 143. What does it say? It says this, God, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. There it was. And black and white. No one living is righteous before God. But they still, even though they know this, they still maintain their striving. And if God's word wasn't enough to convince them of their inability to, to work their way to God, the very fact that the Jewish people had a long, sordid history of disobedience should have made it painfully clear. And sadly, for centuries, they were completely wrong in the manner in which they were pursuing salvation because they were running a race that they were never, ever, ever, ever going to be able to win. But the ancient Jews, folks, they're not alone in running the wrong race. History has been... And our world continues to be filled with people who are running very, very hard towards the wrong finish line. Many of those people are very religious people. They're passionate about what they believe. They work extraordinarily hard at being morally good. And in the process, they have mistakenly believed that God owes them something because that for which they have done. And no matter how fast they run, they're heading towards the wrong finish line, and in the end, they end up losing the race. Some of us in this room, and some of you on the other end of the fiber optic cable that is making its way into your house right now, know that full well. Some of us have been striving and striving to find God's approval through our works, and the pro in the process, we have missed the free gift of eternal life that Jesus offers through his death and resurrection. And because of that, we have been living lives of frustration and bitterness and disappointment that not only affect us, but they radically affect the people that we care the most about. And what's interesting about all of this is, is that Paul teaches that in the midst of their religious striving, people actually, they encounter Jesus, who he refers to as a stone. But rather than building their life upon this cornerstone, Jesus instead, to these people who are striving for their own salvation, he becomes a stumbling stone to them. Look at the end of verse 32 and verse 33. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Why did the ancient Jews stumble over Jesus rather than building their life upon him? Because he wasn't the Jesus that they were expecting. They were looking for one Jesus, one Messiah, and the Jesus that showed up, the real Messiah, was far different than who they were looking for. They were looking for, for a political hero, someone who would overthrow the, the Roman overlords, who would pull them out from oppression of the Romans, who would fight on their behalf and ultimately restore Jesus, or the Jews to the glory days. They wanted a valiant warrior. Jesus offered them a sacrificial savior. They wanted freedom from the oppression of the Romans. Jesus offered them freedom from the oppression of sin. They wanted to, to justify themselves through their own flawed works. And Jesus came along and he offered to justify them himself through his perfect works. Jesus was not who they wanted or expected and because of that, it caused them to stumble and reject him. But as for the Gentiles, the non-religious people, they didn't have the same expectations that the Jews had. They weren't even looking for a Messiah. They, they were going through their lives, doing their own things, many times leaving a trail of destruction in their paths. And they weren't trying to earn their way to God. They're, they're just living their lives not to please God. They're living their lives to please themselves. So when they encounter Jesus, and when they learn the truth of, of who they were and who he is, many of them came to faith in Christ. Why? Because they recognized they had absolutely nothing to offer. When they compared themselves to Jesus, now they know the depth of their sin. They know their spiritual need. They know that they could never, ever meet God's standard. And so they turned to Jesus in faith alone because, folks, that's all they had. Faith was it. They had caused so many problems. They had wrecked so many things. There was nothing they brought to the table. The only thing they could bring to the table ultimately was faith. And in the process, they don't stumble over Jesus. Instead, they stand upon that very cornerstone that we sang about a few minutes ago. And Jesus declared that as much in Matthew 22 when he quotes Psalm 118 and says this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Folks, this is what many of us, praise God, have done. We know our own inadequacy. We know the utter depth of our sin. And we know that even on our best day, when we think we're getting it all right, that we still fail to meet God's holy standard. And so at some point, we, we turn to Jesus in faith and faith alone, trusting that he and he alone can save us from the penalty of sin. 
Yet there are some of us who are still striving. There are some of us who are still trying to to please God on our own strength, who are still trying to, to justify ourselves, who are still running a race that we could never, ever win. And what is the Apostle Paul's perspective on those of us who fall into the second category, who are trying to justify ourselves before God through failed works, Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I absolutely love what is happening there. And let me tell you why. To Paul, all of this discussion in Romans 9 and Romans 10... Folks, it is far more than than some kind of theological exercise that many in the the postmodern church have turned it into. It isn't about winning or losing some theological debate on, on how people actually get saved. These are his people. He doesn't want them to be lost to hell. So what does he do? He passionately prays for their salvation. And I want you to think about this for a second. The very one who in Romans 9 teaches that God elects people to salvation looks at those fellow Jews, those who are lost, those who have treated him horribly, those who have threatened his life, those who have beat him, those who have run him out of town, and rather than saying, oh, well, They must not be part of God's elect. He instead prays for them. And he prays that they might be saved. Paul has no idea who God's elect are. And so he looks at everyone through the lens that God might very well be drawing them to himself. And we, folks would do well to do the same. To remember that election is far more than some kind of intellectual, theological debate. It's about the eternal souls of moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and sons and daughters and nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters and neighbors and co-workers. I can remember when my mom and dad weren't Christians. They were amazing people. They were extremely religious. They were good, moral people who were attempting to work their way to God. And over the years, I became a Christian when I was a freshman at Grove City College back in 1982, in the fall of 82. And and over those next 12 years, as I, I grew in my faith, I prayed for my mom and dad. I, I, I talked to my mom and dad. Uh, I got even into a major argument with my dad, Kathy, my mom and I, and my dad were at the, the uh, Cheesecake Factory in Redondo Beach, California, right by the house where we lived. And my dad and I got in this enormous fight right there in the booth. 
Not one of our better moments. I remember my dad saying, I think your pastor probably wears polyester suits. I think that was the line that he used. My mom is covering her face right now. And for years, my mom and dad, they didn't budge. Yet never once did I say to myself, maybe they're not among God's elect. Because that wasn't my place to decide. That, that, that information way, way above my pay grade. That's God's plan to decide. And then in one day, in 1994, God moved in an amazing way. And my mom and dad both came to faith. This little church that, that we met at in Union Deposit that was in a fire hall where we were breaking the fire code in the fire hall because we had so many people. And it amazed me that all of my striving, all of my desires to, to, to help save my mom and dad while they were noble, it happens in God's time. Now look again at verse 2. Notice what is especially troubling to Paul. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So here is the crux of the problem. The Jewish people had zeal, they had passion without knowledge. They're passionate about striving to to. Uh, follow God's laws. They, they wanted to live according to God's will. But here's the problem. They didn't know God's will. They're, they're striving after something that they just don't understand. They're zealously running a race that they think is going to lead to salvation. They're on the wrong race. They end up in a race that doesn't end with salvation. They end up on a race that ends in what? Damnation is where it ends. And no amount of zeal makes up for the lack of knowledge. Yet that is how many people live. And I think it's safe to assume that if you ask most people what they would prefer, heaven or hell, I'm going to just take a risk here, but I'm guessing they're probably going to pick heaven. I think if you ask people whether they want to be in hell or they want to be in heaven, most people are going to say, yeah, I think I'll take heaven. And if you ask them how they're going to get to heaven, I'm pretty confident they're going to, most people are going to tell you that they're going to be a, a good person. That's what's going to get them into heaven. And then if you ask them what they're doing to be a good person, I'm, I'm willing to guess that they're going to give you a long list of things that they have done. They're going to say that, that I've, I've been striving to live a moral life. I've worked hard. I have not killed anyone, at least not in the last decade. I recycle. I've adopted a shelter pet. I only eat eggs from free-range chickens. And while they're zealous in doing all of these things, if you ask them, how do you know if what you're doing is actually what God wants you to do, 
they will have no answer. How do I know that? That's because that's how I was before I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Folks, I was making up things as I went along. I, I'm making up the own rules. I'm figuring out, oh yeah, this is acceptable. I can do this and God will like that. No, I shouldn't do this thing here. I'm just making up whatever rule I want to make up. I'm the one who's determining what God wants and what God doesn't want. And if we're honest, I'm confident that describes a lot of you before you ever came to faith in Jesus Christ. So what is God looking for? Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see, God wanted the Jews of Paul's day, and he wants you and I to pursue his righteousness, his plan for what makes people right with him, not our plan. And it is the plan that is rooted in Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, where Jesus pays the penalty for all the sins that, that, that we have done. He gets the, the punishment for that which we should have gotten. While at the same time, he transfers to us his right standing with God the Father, which was earned, what, through his perfect righteous life, and he gives that to us, which is appropriated through faith. It's the plan that Jesus shared with the Jews over the three years that he walked with them, and it's the plan that the Jews rejected because they wanted to establish their own righteousness before God. And sadly, it is the plan that many people reject today because in our pride, we want to establish our own righteousness. And we want to earn our own salvation. And that's why the doctrine of election is so hard for people. Because it's all about God. And it's not about us. And so we, we don't like that. Because we think we need to have something ultimately to do about it. Now let me wrap up our time together by briefly addressing verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, it's very easy to misunderstand this verse. This verse is not, and I repeat, not stating that Christ ended God's law. It's also not saying that because Jesus lived and died and was raised again, that you and I can ignore God's law if we place our faith and trust in Jesus. Because you and I, we are still obligated to follow God's moral law as Christians. Jesus himself said this in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will obey or keep my commandments. And when we obey God's law, we actively demonstrate that we love Jesus. It's not obeying the law that makes Jesus love us. It's obeying the law that demonstrates that we love Jesus. Jesus. So what is it saying? It is saying that Jesus ended the law being a way, ended the, 
the law being a way of being righteousness before God for those who believe. So Jesus ends the method of the law being the way to righteousness for those who believe. In other words, for those of us who receive Jesus in faith, it's not following the law that makes us right with God. It's Jesus, him following God's law, that makes us right with God. And that is great news. But there is bad news. For those who don't believe, to those who, who want to have not received Jesus in faith, the law still stands. And there is a way to make ourselves fully righteous with God on our own strength, and that is by following God's law every single day, every hour of the day, every moment of the day, not a single slip up, which is impossible for anyone because we are not holy, but Jesus is holy. And when we strive to do that, when we strive to fill all of those laws, folks, it is a race that we will never, ever, ever win. So the question becomes this. What race are you running? Are you running the, the, the race of faith that leads to eternal life in Jesus Christ? Or are you running some other race? A race of your own making. A race that perhaps promises life, but ultimately ends in death. If you're running the wrong race, and your heart is still beating, here's the good news. It's not too long, late, to change your course to begin running the race that results not only in eternal life, as if that isn't enough, but that brings joy and hope and comfort in this crazy world that we live in. It's a choice we all get to make. What race are we ultimately going to run? One that leads to life or one that ultimately leads to death. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for these uh, two uh, truths, Heavenly Father, of uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And thank you, dear God, that, that they are working together all at the same time. And Lord, that while we may not be able to totally rationalize or, or get our mind wrapped around this, that they are equally true. And Lord God, that you need to be glorified for both of those. And Lord, I pray for, for those in this room right now, for those, Heavenly Father, who have been running the race of faith. I, I thank you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus has secured our victory. That, 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 Lord, we can get weary and tired on the race, that we can stumble and fall, and it is Jesus who comes alongside of us and, and continues to take us along because he has won it. Lord, would you forgive us for, for all the times that we strive to, 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 Lord, earn our own salvation when we have already received it because you have earned it. 
And Lord, for those in this room right now who have yet to come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, I pray, Heavenly Father, that, that, that they would see the futility of their striving. That they would see, Heavenly Father, that, 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 that your law is perfect and it's infinite. And, and Lord, it requires an infinite being to be able to achieve it, that which we are not, but your son was. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that for those who've yet to know you, that, that today would be the day of salvation. I, I pray that today, Heavenly Father, that they would come before you in this place, that they would confess their sins before you. And Lord, that they would reach out to your Son in faith and, and, and claim his promise that all who come to him, you will not turn away. Lord, would you do that, please, in this place now? And Lord Jesus, as we prepare to wrap up this service, and we prepare to take this offering. Father, I want to thank you for, for those who faithfully give to support this ministry. Thank you, Lord, for those who will be, be placing gifts in the baskets that pass through this room. Thank you for, for those who are here and who are at home, who, who give electronically or who give through the mail. And Father, I, I pray for them. And, and Lord, I pray for those who are here today or at home who, who desire to give, but Lord, through whatever purpose or reason it is that they are not able to do that, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help them in the future so that they could give. And Lord, be blessed with the gift of entrusting uh, some of our resources to you. So Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for this time. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.